I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a panel from the conference, Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis. This was the final panel of the conference, with Ethan Clark and Carl Abrahamson presenting at Brunenberg Castle in Murano, Italy, on June 1st. 2019. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. All right, so our first speaker is Ethan Clark, and the title of his talk is Futurism and Techno-Spirituality. Ethan Clark is an anthropologist who earned his degree from UC Santa Cruz graduating summa cum laude. His primary areas of study are war and conflict, art and visual culture, technology, and evolutionary biology. All right, thank you for the intro. So, where do myths fit in to a secular framework? Can secular individuals and a secular society make use of magical thinking without necessarily utilizing any of the trappings of it. And more importantly, sure, uh, do they already do it unconsciously? Yes, uh, obviously yes, um, because myths and metaphysical thinking occupy an adaptational advantage. They help us create a framework for the world. They help us make sense of collective tragedy, collective memory, and help us understand things in a way that just the facts can't. So I'm going to be delving into a case study of a particular collective tragedy, and how we formed a collective memory to understand it better than the truth alone. The Vietnam War occupies a special place within the collective American consciousness. It is at once a symbol of pride and futility, an icon of our shortcomings as a force for global intervention, but also our tenacity to, heavy air quotes, do the right thing. It was a proxy war fought between the East and the West as a display of ideological strength. Communist pride and unity against capitalist technology and individualism. 
But as the war dragged on, it became a cause and a symptom of America's growing pains as well. A military conflict fought in Southeast Asia became a metaphorical screen onto which to project and make sense of the changing attitudes of a nation. The collective desire on the part of the American people to understand and explain what happened in such a muddled war and what purpose Western ideology serves in the modern world is what accounts for the breadth of media based on the Vietnam conflict. Even before the war's end, Hollywood began to produce films based on the foray. And as the war came to its conclusion and entered into the field of memory, these films became more nuanced, exploring and analyzing themes of technological innovation, American exceptionalism, colonialism, and the role of traditional American masculinity. These films also provided catharsis to a rattled public still trying to make sense of what they had seen and heard from Vietnam. As a result, a gestalt has been created, one that remembers the war as a chaotic meat grinder where innocent Americans were exploited by a knowing and corrupt government to fight in a saber-rattling contest. It depicts the confusion and horror of asymmetrical warfare in a dense environment. It shows the surreal experience of war, but it does so through the lens of mythos. The war fought in Vietnam and the war fought in Philippine jungles on a film set 20 years after are two different, but nonetheless impactfully real conflicts. The projected image of Vietnam has become the collective memory for it, and this imagined battlefield has found global acceptance. Before the 1960s, it is unlikely that most Americans would have been able to identify Vietnam on a map. Indochina was one of several French colonies, and if the region were to appear in film, it was more likely than not as little more than an exotic backdrop for a romance or adventure movie. Rarely were these films in, interested in any semblance of accuracy. Instead, Southern California substituted a Southeast Asian jungle and wicker furniture was abundant, shorthand for we're in the colonies. All of this changed, however, following the defeat of the French and the rise of communism in the region. By the end of the 1950s, Vietnam was a household name. You already had American advisors there at that point. Hollywood has become the de facto authority on the Vietnam War experience, surpassing documentaries and newsreels within the media pantheon when it comes to offering a glimpse of the real war, particularly for those born after the conflict. Films weave into the memories of those who were there and those who watched the war on TV as it happened, intertwining with documented realities and constructing a hybrid of fact and fiction. Hollywood has formed several narratives about the experience. The brutality of combat, the futility of war, the victimization of direct action grunts, and the Vietnam veteran as an individual wrapped in wisdom yet scarred. The veteran's experience is regarded in many ways as incommunicable, with the Vietnam War unrepresentable, a theme borrowed from discussions of the Holocaust. By embracing this, a sympathetic viewpoint, the myths of the Vietnam War have become draped in allegory and poetic device. Michael Hare can perhaps be considered the most influential wartime correspondent during the conflict. Writing for Esquire, he reported using a dreamy and surreal style, fast talking and telling stories 
that were sharp-witted, larger than life, and filled with literary images. He would compile his experiences into the journalistic book come memoir, Dispatches, in 1977. The book arguably inspired a generation of writers, as well as being influential in the screenplays for several films about the war. Hare intentionally wrote in a cinematic fashion. In 1978, he said of it, in any other war, they would have made movies about us too. Dateline Hell, Dispatch from Hong Dong Ha. But Vietnam is too awkward. Everyone knows how awkward. And if people don't want to hear about it, uh, you know they're not going to pay money to sit there in the dark and have it brought up. So we have all been compelled to make our own movies, as many movies as there are correspondence, and this is mine. Excuse me. Hare's work proved so resonating that he was contracted by Francis Ford Coppola to co-write the screenplay for Apocalypse Now in 1979. <coughs> While the film was not the first about the Vietnam War, it has proven to be one of the most influential and was the first of its kind to attempt a highly realistic treatment of the war. It served as a codifier for the thematic elements of future epic high art treatments of the war, such as Full Metal Jacket, which Hare also co-wrote, and Platoon. Apocalypse Now blends fact with fiction. Many of the vignettes featured in the film are adapted from the experiences of Hare and co-writer John Malleus's veteran friends. For example, the scene in which our protagonist, Captain Willard, played by Martin Sheen, joins a group of besieged Marines on the banks of a river. Willard encounters a Marine with a modified M79 grenade launcher who draws the weapon and aims towards an NVA fortification. Relying only on sound to identify his targets, he fires, obliterating the position. This scene was one actually witnessed by Michael Hare during his work. Given the surrealness of the actual war, it is hard to see where documentary ends and drama begins. This was embraced by many filmmakers who likened their experiences filming to those had during the actual war. Coppola said of the delays long time spent by the cast and crew in the Philippine jungle and the adverse weather conditions they faced that... And I quote, my film is not a movie. My film is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. It was crazy. We had access to too much money, too much equipment, and little by little, we went insane. Directly referencing critiques of wartime administration, experiences of veterans, and themes from Apocalypse Now, Coppola even documented the filmmaking experience in Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. Platoon, another film very much worth delving into, has been lauded as one of the most realistic depictions of the Vietnam War by many, including veterans, who say that it captures a great deal of detail with regards to combat experiences as well as the mundanity and boredom of war. Director Oliver Stone, who was himself a veteran, presented the film as autobiographical, showing his wartime photos and marketing. Additionally, Stone had claimed that he had been at at war, and I quote, with executives to produce the film and had hired former Marine Captain Dale Dye to put the actors through a training routine in the Philippine jungle where the film would be shot. They hauled and ate infamous sea rations and crawled through red clay, emulating the experience of the war as best as they could. Actor Tom Berenger said of the experience, we didn't have to act, we were there. 
Platoon was able to convince the public that it was the real war. It's accurate in a great many ways, but highly dramatic, showcasing the murder, rape, and destruction of Vietnam by the 25th Infantry Division. Platoon is a morality play between good and evil set against the backdrop of Vietnam. It is about a young man's and a nation's loss of innocence. Given the impactful nature of Platoon and Apocalypse Now, as well as their fantastic artistry, it is unsurprising that the public saw them as emblematic of reality. The war also ruptured America's understanding of its place in the world. No longer was the U.S. a universal positive force. Rather, it could make mistakes or fall short of its goals. The Vietnam War has not been remembered as a battle between good and evil. Instead, it was a nuanced foray into a country that had already shaken off one colonial power, and it was a sink for money and lives. The American people questioned what degree they had played in what was quickly regarded as a tragedy. Kids didn't want to play with G.I. Joes anymore. Their sales plummeted, instead focusing on fantasy-themed toys. In the 1970s and the 1980s, people wanted escapism. On April 23, 1975, within a week of the fall of Saigon, President Ford gave a speech at Tulum University, during which he pleaded with the public to halt the national debate surrounding the Vietnam War, stating that Americans cannot regain their pre-war sense of pride by refighting a war that is finished. To a degree, this appeal echoed a collective sense of national fatigue that demanded a sense of healing and closure. Though the war fought in the celluloid jungles is fought and refought, its meanings and effects have been changed with the times, reflecting a healing process. The spate of films made about the Vietnam War tended to represent, or yeah, tended to represent it in an uncritical light, the first spate, that is, foregoing analysis for action. In many ways, they followed the same structure as World War II films, wherein valiant and macho heroes strike out righteously against tyranny. While they paint U.S. soldiers in a positive light, they do little to address the experiences of military personnel in the Vietnam War. They include the action epic The Green Berets, set in 1968 at the height of the war, starring John Wayne. These films offer little in the way of analysis, instead focusing on spectacle, with Vietnam primarily serving as a tropical backdrop. In the late 70s, we saw a selection of critical, morally ambiguous films, such as the aforementioned Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunter, starring Robert De Niro. The era also saw the emergence of a new archetype, the Hollywood Vietnam vet, a crazed, sad junkie twisted by his wartime experience. The psychotic veteran was one of the few avenues for the vet to be redeemed and readmitted back into American society without totally abandoning his past. Dangerous loner anti-hero or unstable villain. Instead of a black hat, the antagonists of 1970s television world wore an old fatigue jacket covered in peeling unit patches. However, despite his violence, he was not totally unsympathetic. The Nam vet's rage was not something he would directly release upon Americans. He was not here during a psychotic break or even a predetermined and premeditated scheme. He was still in the shit. Thus, the Vietnam vet becomes a victim, even as a murderer, psychologically broken by the government he trusted. It let America cope with collective primal anger and confusion of witnessing the first televised war, 
one which we could not even agree on the outcome of. The tragic Vietnam veteran became a surrogate for the country's collective trauma and guilt, ironically, perhaps partially due to its treatment of veterans. The phantasmagorical veteran has, was thus a ghost haunting America as much as the mythical special forces operator haunted the jungles of former Indochina, channeling his rage into righteousness. In 1977's Rolling Thunder, an ex-army major and former POW survived the torture of criminals due to him facing similar treatment at the hands of the NVA. Travis Bickle of Taxi Driver in 76. Well, he's somewhat of a deconstruction, but no less fits the archetype. He is a hero on a fluke. He is sexually frustrated and angry. He could have been an assassin, but he went down as a vigilante. The film shows that he is a heinous man. The people he kills, though criminals, are shown suffering, and he is shown to be genuinely insane. He traumatizes the girl instead of winning her heart, and he is no hero. But television in the 80s was slightly kinder. The A-Team and Magnum P.I. saw veterans as toughened and skilled because of the war. These characters tend to, rely, uh, to rarely have psychological issues due to their past experiences, though those experiences still figured into their backstory. There was also a trend in family programs and sitcoms wherein characters would happen to be veterans, but it wasn't factored in to the personality or storyline. Their past remained alien and separate from their uh, present experience, perpetuating the mythical qualities of the conflict. Now, the Rambo series deserves special mention. Though the protagonist is a psychologically damaged veteran, he is treated sympathetically. Not only that, he shows pride in serving, but objects to his treatment at home and the government's treatment of him. John Rambo represents a surprisingly complex character. In Rambo First Blood, 1985, he refuses a medal after rescuing American POWs on behalf of the U.S. government, claiming that he just wants the country to, quote, love them as much as they loved it. While this can easily be read as nationalistic pandering, it communicates the tenderness of American patriotism in the post-Vietnam era and a desire to reunite and collectively grieve. Despite Rambo's adolescent machismo, he wants to be loved. Betrayed and coming of age in the Vietnam era, the American public was traumatized and it realized in its collective zeitgeist that it could do wrong, that a war could be unrighteous. It became self-aware, and it was scared. Scared to know that heroes can die and Americans can lose, and that it can all be so meaningless. Under the machismo, under the anger, there was a desire not from veterans, but from the whole nation for acceptance, for unconditional love, and the realization that it wouldn't necessarily come. Veterans came home from World War II to massive celebration. In contrast, Vietnam vets trickled in one by one, some via underfunded VA hospitals, labeled social misfits and outcasts by television and film. Even when positively represented, they expected the praise of their fathers but were met with derision instead. The sharp contrast between films set during the Second World War and the Second Indochina War is striking. World War II films generally rely on notions of American heroism. Germans were totally irredeemable, and the Japanese were stuck in ancient custom. We learn that the Axis was full of spies while the Allies fought face to face. The Allies were 
Paragons of justice and the Axis was admittedly totalitarian. Americans respected each other, and even American and British civilians wanted to help fight the war effort from the home front. Of course, German and Japanese civilians were glossed over. Of note is that according to the selective service system, only 25% of Vietnam veterans were draftees, whereas in World War II, 66% were. War films, at least those made in the period between World War II and Vietnam, raised a generation of loyal patriots. Soldiers went to Vietnam with images from World War II movies in their heads. Michael Hare, going back to him, wrote of it, I keep thinking of all the kids who got wiped out by the 17 years of the war movies before coming to Vietnam to get wiped out for good. You don't know what a media freak is until you've seen the way a few of these grunts would run around during a fight when they knew a camera crew was nearby. They were actually making war movies in their heads. The first few times I got fired at or saw combat deaths, nothing really happened. It was the same familiar violence, only moved over to another medium. Many of the men fighting during Vietnam were still in their teens. These were ostensibly child soldiers. The level of violence that surrounded those in active combat and the toll that level of stress takes awakened nostalgic images of an imagined World War II. It is somewhat ironic how committed journalists like Michael Hare have been to leaving everything as raw as possible to respond to the sterility of the World War II narrative when this rawness would itself be used to construct what is in many ways just as fictitious a tale. Vietnam was a war, not a movie. To quote a veteran, I lost my footing and went under the water and came up and out, screaming, this ain't a war movie. This ain't a John Wayne movie. I started to laugh. Vietnam wasn't a war movie. The World War II movies could no longer reflect reality, black out the pain and anger, and justify me as the good American who had come to rescue the Vietnamese by killing Vietnamese. They were really propaganda films. The war was confusing and dividing. Its end raised questions about the very concepts that could help organize and explain it away. Imperialism, technological exceptionalism, the American masculinity and machismo as an infallible force. They were all put to trial. It still lacks closure, and there's still debate over whether the United States simply withdrew or was defeated, and the exact figures of how many individuals, let alone Americans, perished during the war are still unknown. It is telling that the POW slash MIA flag still holds such a vivid place in public memory. In the 1980s and 1990s, we see a period of forgiveness and a desire for healing in cinema. Prominently Born on the Fourth of July, based on the memoir of the same name, offers the experience of Ron Kovac. Kovac starts as a suburban kid from Long Island and is raised to trust his country absolutely. During his time in the war, he experiences the horror of a civilian massacre and later mistakenly kills a member of his own platoon. He suffers grievous injury and, after nearly dying, is returned home to an abusive veterans affairs hospital. In the end, his experiences in Vietnam leave him physically and psychologically ravaged, much like the nation. Kovac becomes cynical and callous, turning against his own government and opposes the war. He has achieved his coming of age at the cost of innocent bliss. Kovac's loss of innocence parallels that of the US. 
The narratives of ambiguity and confusion surrounding the Vietnam War have had a lasting legacy on the American identity. Documents and fictional films set during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan following grunts seem to evoke the raw viscerality of films such as Apocalypse Now. These films represent a sort of emotional pornography in which the audience becomes the soldier. This is also true of video games as well. Semi-fictional accounts, such as Generation Kill in 2008, depict the struggle of the Marine 1st Recon Battalion as uh, they sought to reach Baghdad in a Coppola-esque journey into the heart of the desert. In a feudal conflict, short on supplies and becoming increasingly disillusioned, the mythos surrounding the Vietnam War is a cautionary tale. But the myth does not tell the full story. A popular veteran's bumper sticker says Vietnam was a war, not a movie. As realistic as a film like Platoon or Born on the Fourth of July can strive to be, it does not express the totality of the war or the military experience. Almost never mentioned in film is the service of the South Vietnamese, the air van, in the war. The experiences of military personnel outside of direct combat positions on the ground, the involvement of women in the military, or the life of communist troops, who often were as much aliens in the jungle as U.S. soldiers were. While these stories are perhaps not as exciting as those about Marines in the jungle, they represent at least a fraction more of the conflict in its totality. A 1980 Harris survey of vets revealed that 91 were glad they served. 91%, that is. 74% said they enjoyed their time in the service. 80% disagreed with the statement, the United States took unfair advantage of me. Additionally, more than 70% said they did not often dream that they were back in Vietnam. Furthermore, in 1982, the Department of Labor Statistics stated that Vietnam vets were no more likely to be unemployed than non-veterans. And in 1981, the Bureau of Justice concluded that, on the whole, veterans were less likely than non-veterans to be in prison. While the horror of war is a trying and lasting experience, and it is likely that many instances of mental illness such as PTSD go undiagnosed and unreported, approximately 20% of Vietnam vets experienced emotional difficulties upon returning home due to the war. While that is roughly a quarter of those who served, it is by no means indicative of the unstable walking weapons, the Bickles and Rambos of the silver screen. The stories told about war are often exceptional, and that is precisely why they are told. Vietnam was a horrific war, as all wars are, but to reduce the veteran to a permanent victim of circumstance, someone without a future only harms them and strips them completely of agency. And it does not allow those who have suffered strongly to move forward. It is especially unfortunate for those who did come home shaken by their experiences in the war that the Vietnam veteran has become so fragmented and symbolically reconstructed, a naive child, a warmonger or hippie, a savior or atrocity organizer, a super soldier or baby killer, a victim of his government but rarely a genuine person. Vietnam has been made into a screen, a nation transformed by a conflict into an idea. The mythical Vietnam is just that. The abstracted war of interpretation has been important 
in ways very different from the true history of the conflict in coping with the revelations that the Cold War brought. A war that fundamentally reorganized the landscape of human culture. East, West, socialist, capitalist, post-colonial, mass communication. The first world and the third, conceptual shifts with vast implications. Culture is shaped not only by what happened, but also by what we think happened. And the U.S. needed a praxis to accept the ambiguity that the information age would bring. The Vietnam War that is seen on the silver screen is not the one fought in Indochina, but it is a simulacrum of it in which the collective processing of modernity can be explored. Vietnam, or America's phantom war in Vietnam was fought for a different purpose that has been just as instrumental in shaping the modern world. I'm the wrong person to ask. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, and you'll probably be hearing more from him. And his paper is called uh, Literature, Culture, and a Damn Fine Friendship on the Symbiosis of Ezra Pound and James Laughlin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for letting us be here in this wonderful environment. Um, looking at the relationship between Ezra Pound and his principal uh, publisher, James Laughlin, and not only gives us an interesting insight about their specific relationship, but also uh, one about the cultural environment that they were uh, both in and became key players in. There is something of the magical in this, both thematically and dynamically. Uh, we have a relationship that is at first imbued with the dynamic of a master and an apprentice, but that later changes into a more concrete working relationship and constructions of mutual uh, creative universes and also of careers. The master also roams freely through religious, philosophical, mythic, and magical spheres, and disseminates enlightening symbols or fragments through his vibrant poetic mind, both in his work proper, but also in correspondence with the disciple, who already realizes from the very beginning what a privileged situation he is in. This fundament was laid out already in 1933, when the 18-year-old Laughlin wrote to 48-year-old Pound, who was then situated in Rapallo, Italy. Pound welcomed students and friends to come join him in what used to be called the 
Isu University, Ezra's University. And if you simply stayed around, you got to hang out with one of the world's most famous modernist poets, and you could try to integrate as much or as little learning or inspiration as you saw fit, no other curriculum necessary or perhaps even existing. Pound at this time gave teaching as such a lot of thought and had plans to eventually set up an academy based on quality minds and quality source material, yet always within a non-restrictive framework. In his text called The Teacher's Mission, Pound stated didactically what the important things were, and I quote, All teaching of literature should be performed by the presentation and juxtaposition of specimens of writing and not by discussion of some other discusser's opinion about the general standing of a poet or an author, end quote. In the same text, Pound elaborates on what seemed to be of equal importance to him at this time, which is teaching culture as a kind of sacred mission. I quote again, Artists are the antennae of the race. If this statement is incomprehensible, and if its corollaries need any explanation, let me put it as that a nation's writers are the voltometers and the steam gauges of that nation's intellectual life. They are the registering instruments, and if they falsify the reports, there is no measure to the harm that they do." End quote. Recommended to go see Pound by a friend and teacher at Harvard who was called Dudley Fitz, James Laughlin was one of the hungrier students at the East University. After having arrived, Laughlin got a dose of Pound's acerbic, yet probably well-meaning advice along the lines of, your poetry is no good. <laughs> Why don't you start a publishing company instead? I will help you find authors that matter. Had Laughlin been a, what you call a pathological poet, uh, he would of course have stormed out in rage. But he was more insightful than that and actually heeded his master's advice. The publishing company called New Directions began humbly but was supported from the beginning by Laughlin's uh, father and also an aunt. Upon graduating from Harvard in 1939, Laughlin's father, who was a very wealthy steel industrialist or, or an heir uh, to a steel industrialist empire, endowed him with $100,000. Laughlin was smart as he didn't invest all the money in the publishing, but in his other passion, skiing. <laughs> he, he opened up a skiing resort in Utah, which very soon turned a profit. And these profits were then invested back into championing modernist icons like Pound, and the result is still with us through new directions. Still a heavy-duty player when it comes to fine quality literature and poetry. <clears throat> and as some of you might know, each title that they publish still has the same line on the Impressum page, uh, which says, New Directions books are published for James Laughlin. And one could argue that during the first decade of their friendship, the books were to an equal degree published for Ezra Pound. 
Now, pardon the pun. Uh, Laughlin knew the value of the pound, but more so in the poetic sense than uh, in a commercial, uh, commercial sense. His mind was set already from the get-go of New Directions to always keep pound in print. And as a kind of religious devotion to a poet so brilliant and important that he owed it to the world. And this, of course, makes you think, what if? What if this young entrepreneur hadn't had this unconventionally devotional attitude? Where would Pound's legacy be today? Laughlin wrote to a friend, quote, these days, New Directions is a bubble with frenetic roil of switched wires and tangled gargles as we struggle to get out a lot of new books. Ruin hangs like a large garbage pail over the Halloween doorway because costs are way up and sales are way down. But who knows? Whoever knows who does. Important and gratifying keeping all the books of Pound and William Carlos Williams in print, which I could do because I inherited money. A normal commercial publisher would have had to remainder many books New Directions keeps in print. End quote. Pound's own publishing history that far had been a mixed and often quite paradoxical bag, which very much reflected the overall modernist movement environment. Radical authors and poets like Pound, Joyce, and Eliot were mostly published in small literary magazines, and quite often these authors were part of the editorial boards of these and other magazines. There existed a rich cultural climate if we look at the signal and personal engagement. But then, just as now, peer-produced media didn't really have uh, a strong and wide outreach. The esoteric dynamic of preaching to the already converted needed to be overcome, and Pound was good at this, as his books also started coming out on bigger publishing companies. This, however, was not an easy situation for Pound and the others. They shared a sentiment that the really powerful uh, publishers were commercial, and hence infected somehow by a kind of base unseriousness and lack of comprehension of what these modernists were trying to achieve. More often than not, this can be ascribed more to a kind of narcissistic neurosis than anything else, because in fact, there were many publishing companies who were interested in what these pioneering uh, people were doing, but the poor sales discouraged them from carrying on sort of at the same pace uh, as these wild formal experimentalists. So that mix between small literary journal freedom and unwillingly, willingly trying to secure better publishing deals was a normal situation at this time. One could complain in vitriolic rants to fellow poets about the corruption and the inefficiency of big publishing companies but at the same time gladly accept invitations from these same environments. <clears throat> How perfect then for Pound that here comes a really smart and potentially very wealthy young one. A poet at heart who is soon washed clean of those aspirations by an elder with many quite ulterior motives. But Laughlin didn't mind. He didn't mind at all because he understood the dynamics very well right from the start. 
Not only would this mean an incorporation of an already existing and inspiring friendship, but also access to a very strong network of the very best poets and writers of the era. And let's not forget that Pound had at this time already for decades defined and refined both others' works and authorships proper. T.S. Eliot, as we know, dedicated the wasteland to Pound, who had edited the masterpiece into its full glory. Eliot wrote, for Ezra Pound, il miglior fabro, which in this case means the better craftsman. For Laughlin, hosting Pound's authorship also meant hosting Pound's mind and friends. Already in 1934, Pound put Laughlin in touch with William Carlos Williams and Louis Zukowski, who both became solid literary worker horses in his stable. And Pound also made sure Laughlin became the literary editor of Gorham Munson's uh, social credit magazine called New Democracy. And the literary page there was called New Directions, and that set a snowball in motion that is still rolling today. While the two were working on editions of Pound's already overwhelming oeuvre, focusing mainly on the many variants and developments of the cantos, the correspondence soon integrated other topics dealing with the most important things in life, that is, literature and culture. But it became clear as time passed by, and Laughlin in many ways uh, individuated himself out of the pure acolyte stage, that he was well aware of a situation of gratitude vis-a-vis -vis Pound. They both were aware of this, but that Laughlin was also on his own also his own. As Pound's radical economic reform ideas merged with literally classical forms of anti-Semitism, uh, Laughlin objected and said straight out that he'd publish none of that. So, in a way, there was a streak of a Christic uh, archetype in Pound. Uh, and what I mean by that is that his work in itself was not enough, it seems. It needed for him to be contextualized in perhaps unnecessarily complex ideas and marketed to the world, but with, he, with himself as a clearly visible instigator. The economic reform ideas that were so radical at the time, and they still are, are one such example, and one that was actually already taken care of by other instigators at the time. And when these economic ideas were padded in anti-Semitic clothing, it's another uh, Christic gestalt taking form, that of Golgotha, and of Pound not only as a poet thinker, but also as a martyr. After the war, back in the US, and interned at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, DC, Pound's work on a utopian academy that would define a certain Poundian learning and also way of learning could be seen as an example of the same phenomenon. Pound's mind was simply so advanced and lofty that he probably couldn't see that these structural issues or constructions actually hampered uh, his strictly poetic flow, not to mention his career. In the context of his books like 
uh, ABC of Reading and Guide to Culture, both classics, there is a strong didactic pedagogic, pedagogic streak. But even here, when the teacher disseminates his wisdom to us, there is also lofty poetry at work and in motion, and a lot of aphorisms that are beautiful and still stick. I quote, It doesn't matter, and this is him writing about poetry, it doesn't matter which leg of your table you make first, so long as the table has four legs and will stand up solidly when you have finished it. And literature is news that stays news. And without gods, no culture. Without gods, something is lacking. Some Stoics must have known this and considered logic a mere shell outside the egg. And a civilized man is one who will give a serious answer to a serious question. Civilization itself is a, is a certain sane balance of values. End of quotes. Basically, when Pound's ideas leave the lofty arena of poetry, developed during a lifetime of advanced learning and creative association, and drift into um, political demagogia and a perhaps compensatory need for majestic structures, they lose their mythic and inspirational value. I think that Laughlin saw this very clearly and could therefore be adamant about saying no to certain works. Laughlin saw the value and the brilliance of the cantos, as did many, many others already early on, like right from the beginning, in that it included an entire universe, perhaps even more, of thoughts, ideas, and emotions, of past, present, and future, of experimental theory and pragmatic poetic practice, to stretch beyond the experimental perfection of Pound's poetry and, by all means, also prose, was simply not necessary, according to Laughlin. Even if he had wanted to, Pound, I think, would have had a hard time decontextualizing his own approaches. It was simply one cluster of attitudes and ideas in which everything was connected and also relevant, and it seemed impossible for the maestro to untangle personal poetic perspectives from a general Nietzschean legacy that so often seeped through. Uh, in 1918, Pound stated in a piece about Henry James, quote, the whole of great art is a struggle for communication. All things that oppose this are evil, whether they be silly scoffing or obstructive tariffs. And this communication is not a leveling. It is not an elimination of differences. It is a recognition of differences, of the right of differences to exist, of interest in finding things different. Kultur is an abomination. Philology is an abomination. All repressive, uniforming education is an evil." End quote. And this is just a text about Henry James. <laughs> so, so even a literary overview of an ad admired author apparently couldn't be spared from a, from a kind of general demagogia. If we are kind and diplomatic today, and we are, uh, we could call this attitude passionate. But it is also an example of Pound's recurring tendency to drift from the poetic or descriptive center uh, of his own web uh, to his own web of strained associations and almost justifying ideas, although essentially no justifications are necessary. Uh, 
In literary criticism, this was fine, as a kind of highbrow seasoning in a heady soup that a fair chunk of Western intellectuals uh, ate with a great appetite and also found nutritious. But when one group or culture was targeted in similarly eloquent flows that could never be read as anything but political, having severed all ties to any literary, poetic, or even general cultural context, the situation naturally became more problematic. As Laughlin was preparing for new editions of the ever-growing Cantos in 1940, he and Pound wrote back and forth about clauses in their contract that would release new directions from any litigations stemming from uh, anti-Semitism, or perhaps to even have an introduction in the new edition explaining and perhaps even justifying uh, some of Pound's ideas. Laughlin wrote, I quote, I think that I ought to write a preface or something to these new cantos explaining what it what is what. I mean linking them up with what has gone before and giving a summary of the earlier ones. You see, the attitude over here is that the cantos are incomprehensible, end quote. To this, Pound was, of course, strongly opposed, but at the same time, actually more than willing to suggest various improvements, uh, probably to appease, uh, respectfully appease Laughlin's publishing conundrum. Thereby, in some ways, admitting, if not guilt, then at least awareness, awareness of the controversial sticks of dynamite that they were tossing back and forth. Laughlin respectfully striving for avoidance of headaches and disaster, and Pound striving for almost gleeful pushing of the boundaries. Pound wrote back, quote, I don't mind affirming in contract so long as I'm not expected to alter text. You can put it this way. The author affirms that in no passage should the text be interpreted to mean that he condemns any innocent man or woman for another's guilt, and that no degree of relationship, familial or racial, shall be taken to imply such condemnation. Also, but no group, national or ethical, can expect immunity not accorded to other groups, end quote. And so on and so forth, back and forth, in minute detail. In 1941, uh, Laughlin hears of Pound's uh, radio broad broadcasts from Italy. Uh, he wrote, quote, You are pretty much disliked for your orations. Your name in general might be said to aspire, but not attain to the dignity of mud. This was harsh. I would rather fill this unfortunate interim with fairly uncontroversial things like the Canto Selection and the Cavalcanti, which was another book project they had. End quote. Pound wrote back, quote, No use your saying I'm disliked. I want to know how and by whom. Details welcome. What you need is a little trip to Europe as a refresher. End quote. But... As the U.S. entered into the Second World War in 1942, that little refresher trip literally wasn't on the map for Laughlin. However, the two remained in touch sporadically during the war to keep business going. But Pound's destiny now seemed as sealed as Italy's, as well as that of the Axis powers in general, and this in a very Wagnerian sense. Uh, Götter Demerung is real, so let's stoke uh, the pyre. Pound's insistence, eloquence, and stamina, and his active integration of not-so-symbolic 
anti-Roosevelt orations, perhaps more than anything else, eventually led to his arrest and to being placed at first in a cage and then later in a hospital tent in Pisa. A Jewish chaplain provided him with writing materials so he could write his classic Pisan cantos, uh, probably a strange twist of destiny for Pound. Laughlin wrote to Pound in September 1945. I am afraid that things are going to be tough for you here, but rest assured that though you have many spiteful enemies, you also have a few friends left who will do their best to help you. No one takes your, sides of, takes your side, of course, in the political sense, but many feel that the bonds of friendship and the value, values of literature can transcend a great deal, end quote. In many ways, their correspondence both during the war and then afterwards, uh, as Pound was interned in the US, is endearing and genuine, but also in many ways um, something you could describe as pussyfooting. There is no straight-out clarity, and especially not when it comes to problematic issues that could inflict damage on both men's careers. I think this stems back to the very first communications in the early 1930s, when, on the surface, there was mutual admiration for energy and zest, but underneath the surface, a mutual reckoning and evaluation going on. The poet saw a young publisher who could keep his old and new works in print and develop a career on American soil, while he himself enjoyed Italy uh, and was, at least before the war, out of reach. Uh, of tangible uh, hostilities. Laughlin, of course, saw a mentor and a source of inspiration, but also an open door to a pretty vast network of authors and poets that he could exploit under the umbrella of mutual benefits. And since the formula worked so well from basically day one, I think no one wanted to rock this boat. As Pound grew more and more infirm during the 60s, Laughlin stepped forward and took on more of the role of literary agent. He helped set up deals of recordings, editions with other publishers, uh, translations, etc. Their correspondence was never really personal or emotional, but rather continuous eruptions of wit and puns, of agreements and disagreements. And when Pound was back in Europe, uh, Europe and living right here where we are assembled today, this position of Laughlin's became even clearer. Uh, he was at a vital 50 in 1965, whereas Pound was at a more dwindling 80. The power dynamic had changed quite diametrically, but there was still plenty of loyalty both ways. In a letter from May 22nd, 1965, Pound wrote Laughlin, I hope you will find some way to print something that will remedy past errors. If you do that, I will sign it 200 times. 200 times. <coughs> End quote. At this time, Pound was quite depressed and often questioned his own value as a poet. James Laughlin did his be very best to inform Pound that the world looked at him differently. There was a strong upsurge of editions and translations in the final decade of Pound's life. With a few exceptions, like certain people wanting to publish uh, Pound's uh, radio broadcasts, uh, he could actually enjoy his autumn years knowing that Laughlin was still out there and pushing his poetic genius onwards. If not to the masses, then at least 
to new generations of intelligentsia. This was certainly, again, to both uh, these men's advantage. And with age, the relationship graduated um, from what I call epiphytic to actually symbiotic. There is in many ways, uh, symbolically at least, a big difference between living off of one another and feeding each other. In the times of hardship for Pound, it was Laughlin who brought forces together to make easier, things easier for Pound, whether to reach out to old friends like Ernest Hemingway for money for Pound's attorneys, or to make sure he had reading and writing materials at St. Elizabeth's, or any other important things. Laughlin was the great facilitator that went well beyond the expected. And this also included continually feeding the American intellectual environment with plenty of pound. And this also led to many co-champions appearing, especially in the younger generations, who saw beyond uh, or simply neglected the politics and preferred the poetry. One of these champions was Allen Ginsberg, who in many ways became a poet laureate of sorts of the American underground just like Pound had been in the 1910s and 20s. In a conversation in the Pound Studies journal Paidoma in 1974, Ginsberg sums up the attitude of, I think, many younger American intellectuals at the time, also many of whom were Jewish. Quote, uh, I quote Ginsberg, Pound told me that he felt that the cantos were uh, stupidity and ignorance all the way through, and they were a failure and a mess, and that its greatest stupidity was stupid suburban anti-Semitic prejudice, uh, as of 1967 when I talked to him. So I told him I thought that since the cantos were for the first time a single person registering over the course of a lifetime all of his major obsessions and thoughts and the entire rainbow are his images and clingings and attachments and discoveries and perceptions, that they were an accurate representation of his mind and so couldn't be thought of in terms of success or failure but only in terms of the actuality of the representation, and that since for the first time a human being had taken the whole spiritual world of thought through 50 years and followed the thoughts out to the end, so that he built a model of his consciousness over a 50-year time span, that they were simply a great human achievement." End quote. Whether Pound appreciated uh, this conversation with Ginsburg, uh, I don't know. But I think it's a valid, I think it's a valid perspective, though. Uh, although Pound was absolutely correct when he claimed that artists are the antennae of the race, these antennae need to stick to a mythic language, whether written, visual, musical, uh, whatever, or else they will be painted into a corner that will be very hard to get out of. And this particular period of history is filled with examples of genuine artists, genuine antennae, many of which were geniuses, like Pound, obviously, who were too, uh, far too easily flattered and cajoled into being poster boys and girls for devious people and movements going on uh, around, around the fairly well-insulated antennae. Pound's good fortune was his network, 
of family and friends, very loyal friends. And it's to them that we owe the gratitude for the preservation and repackaging of Pound as our modernist genius and master, who opened the floodgates to the subconscious, his own and that of our own culture, in a much more powerful way than the aesthetically accessible uh, psychedelic surrealists of, uh, of the same era. Pound drew from the source of the classics of many regions, areas, and eras and cultures, and filtered it all as a scholar, and then expressed it as a truly unique artist, thereby bridging not only spaces and times, but also his inner sanctity and the outer chaos of 20th century Europe. In that sense, a shamanic archetype that freely roams and shares his findings, although uh, probably unsure of who actually understands them. And in that sense, also a Don Quixotic paraphrase in which James Laughlin played the part of Sancho Panza, ever willing to make sense uh, of a confusing world to the pure and good-hearted romantic knight, and vice versa. Thank you. Yes, please. <laughs> Hit me gently. <laughs> I'd like to address a question about Vietnam, if I may. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yes. No, I um, was just wondering uh, if you had ever thought about adding to this absolutely brilliant essay about the mythologization in the, of the war itself in the media, so that you could say the media essentially are the war. Yeah. Um, the other side of the medal, or whether it's, you know, in speaking term, military terms, the anti-war movement, which yeah. was almost equally, at least as I experienced it since I lived there in the 60s, uh, was equally imbued with great myths yeah. and also icons and images, perhaps less in the movie sector, though, of course, all these war movies are now always labeled anti-war films. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Always, every movie is actually an anti-war film. But uh, yeah, this I would, you, could perhaps be a, another resonance chamber or add a degree of complexity to what is already a fairly complex issue? Well, absolutely. I think, you know, it's important to understand that a lot of these war, uh, war films weren't meant, you know, certainly the John Wayne movies at the beginning of the war, they were being produced when it was still happening, were uh, a glorification of the war. But movies like Oliver Stone's work really were meant as anti-war films. He was an anti-war activist. So I, I think that it's important to keep that in mind. I, I think I did touch on it, but you're, you're right. That's absolutely an essential part of the story. And that's part of the narrative. You know, 
what we've come to understand about the Vietnam War, both true and hyperbole, um, is is reflected in in the anti-war mythos too. That's one hundred percent a part of it. Um, you do see that in, in film, in television, with the idea of it rattling veterans. But if I were to expand upon this, and I hope to write at more length about this, I would certainly get into music and the broader art scene, uh, because that makes up part of the collective memory, of course, too. Yeah, yeah I mean, your point that the one of the soldiers said that when they were in the battlefield, yeah. it was like... This idea that these movies are like preparing people to be in yes. these situations, that was really interesting. I never thought about it that way before. Yeah, and it absolutely does. There's, there's a certain level of desensitization. Right. And I think we see that in our own culture a lot, a lot more. It's only accelerated. Um, where Now, I'm not one of those people who's going to say, oh, video games cause violence, but, <laughs> but I, or that would be as silly as saying, oh, heavy metal causes violence. But, but it does desensitize. Mm-hmm. You know, the more we see violent imagery, the more it becomes habituated. Um, and I think we had a long, it's not so much that we had uh, this long period of not seeing violence and then suddenly seeing it, we had a long period of being around violence constantly and then this respite from it that I think the post-World War I generation really sought to, to push because they had seen the horrors of modern war and had really wanted to shelter their kids from it. Um, and, and I think that's where you get this narrative after World War II of only focusing on heroics and and sweeping any shell shock under the rug. It's huge in the immigrant community too. Oh yeah. Because I mean, you have various. The war is always a way to in, to bring new people in, into the fold of what it is to be American. But uh, the Mexican American community in in Southern California, um, through going drafting World War Two was a thing, but came back and celebrated their participation in in World War Two. Yeah. And even though their brothers and sisters were involved in like the starting the counterculture that formed in the '60s, by the time you get to Vietnam, it was a badge of honor if you had someone who died in your family mm-hmm. in the war, and it meant that you were more American. Yeah. And it shifted the focus of whiteness to start including uh, Mexican Americans in a way that it was never allowed before. Um, so cultural pride started happening because of the Vietnam War and allowing yourself to say, "I'm actually Mexican," not just passing yeah. white. But it's, it's an interesting side of it. I remember 1988, my brother was on his, like, he'd just come back from his second year at West Point. And uh, he's 12 years older than me, so I was, I was eight. And he wanted to watch Apocalypse Now. And it was the first time that I had ever heard or seen The Golden Bough, because it's in the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it was also the first, um, I remember then asking about that, my dad pulled off a copy off the, because he had a copy. And my eight-year-old brain tried to start reading The Golden Bough. And it was also the first time I remember seeing the word zeitgeist, interestingly. Um, but uh, that whole mythic complex around it is fascinating, especially with the immigrant side coming in. Was like It changed Southern California hugely. Yeah. 
Um, the more dead was the more American you were. Yeah. And don't question it. So the Ameri the immigrant oh, yeah. community could could not join the rebellion against or join civil rights as easily because they were too busy celebrating that they were like the Americans from 50 years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, or it meant that they would lose footing. So it's a, it's wonderful, really great. War is interesting in that it often serves as a, a proving ground for new immigrants. Yeah. Um, I, you see that with African Americans during World War II. Mm -hmm. It was the first time, I mean, you saw African Americans fighting in the Civil War, but in World War II, you saw much, way more of a black presence on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think we should note, by the way, that one of the first, um, one of the for, first uh, detachments in World War I to cross into Austria-Hungarian territory was black. They were a segregated unit. But again, you really see black Americans becoming um, Americanized yeah. in a greater way after World War II. Or like and the, the Irish with the Civil War. The Irish with the Civil yeah. War. Or Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in Iraq yeah. and Afghanistan. Um, yeah, you, you really... It's always a proving ground for immigrant communities and sort of a, a way of play, paying a blood tax almost. Well, I just have to say about Pound, I just love this spirit. Like he ha clearly had so much energy and I love how he was like synthesizing people around him and making all these introductions and connections and it seems like he was doing that like, for, I wish Katrina was here, but from her paper, when he was the younger one with Yates, yeah. and then, like, did, did that for the next generation, and yeah. I just love that spirit so much. Yeah. I just add uh, to this very sympathetic uh, portrait that you've drawn here, mm -hmm. uh, having known James Lachlan mm -hmm. personally, and uh, he actually sent me the first instructions on skiing. Oh, right. <laughs> the first literary right, right, right. thing that I got from him was about skiing. But uh, as I say, I think what very much made this friendship and this long-range cooperation possible was uh, something that Lachlan was a very tall person. And uh, I always of him a little bit as a giraffe, of which they say, you know, the giraffes are very wise because it takes a very long time for thoughts to, as it were, that are generated down here to reach the head. <laughs> and uh, Lachlan had a similar, very phlegmatic nature. He would rarely get, in that sense, excited, but uh, could always sort of ruminate and by the time he would then articulate his thoughts, they, they always were from a little bit afar mm. and seemed to have a certain kind of equilibrium, mm -hmm. which obviously was of great need, yeah. uh, you know, trying to keep the hysterical uh, voices that were certainly present after yeah. the war yeah. so at bay. Mm. Mm.
right and maybe a good because found clearly so passionate and maybe like a good balance to have this kind of even keel with this passion both ways you know like mm -hmm. found to push him forward and he could and speaking of his tallness, it's so funny to, to see pictures of him on skis. Because skis at that time were very, very long. You know, so it's like this long guy on these incredibly long skis. <laughs> I also love this thing that you said at the end that Allen Ginsberg said. And I had never thought about it that way. But I haven't studied Pound. I've only read, read some. Um, but this idea that this person captured their consciousness and the, these free associations and this automatic writing and integrating cultures and literature and languages mm -hmm. and current events over 50 years. Mm. That's incredible. Mm. What a feat. Un unparalleled still, yeah. you know. Yeah. Now I'm going to read the whole thing. The whole thing. <laughs> Learn it by heart. <laughs> Tom. It's awesome that it seems like Ginsburg kind of inherited Pound's love mentoring because Ginsburg was such a mentor of young poets and perhaps not always out of pure philanthropy. Yeah. <laughs> We're so diplomatic today. <laughs> he was a very, very generous mentor to, to aspiring poets yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. And it's cool that that part of it inherited. Yeah, I think that has to do with the fact that certain poets see this thing as a sacred craft. Yeah. It's a craft, and you know, in any craft, whether it's handicraft or anything, there is this master-apprentice thing. And you know, when you've become a master, it's not only your duty to, to work with it, but also to, you know, what do you call it, pay, back, pay it forward, you know, teach the young ones. No, 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 no. But I think maybe perhaps the ones who do are the genuine ones. Mm -hmm. You get the feeling of someone who, uh, you know, really understood that there was something, of, you know, about poetics that was core to civilization, mm -hmm. well-made things, well-crafted things, and that's one of the things that I love about <coughs> coming into this environment and seeing uh, all these agricultural implements and these well-crafted, well-made, practical things. Mm. He had such an incredible respect for that and as something that it, it seemed to me at least in my reading of him that the human species rose or fall was legitimate or not to the degree to which they were able to stay in touch with that sense of craft mm -hmm. you get that kind of fanatical feeling you know that that uh, uh, the, our, our very existence as a species was at stake to the degree to which we did or did not respect mm -hmm. things that were well made mm -hmm. yeah. Mm. And the interesting thing is also that, that uh, you know, we call this uh, modernist, like Pound is a, a modernist poet. It's a very strange thing to define in a way, in many ways, like, like magic. These terms that are so in our, uh, so common in our language, yet, you know, perhaps no two people have the same definition, essentially. Uh, what, what I find so uh, magical about uh, Pound, maybe perhaps the Cantos especially, is this thing where it, it takes me to another level. And that in itself is a cliche to say today, but literally it takes me to a, a different level of inspiration almost immediately. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean that I understand everything that's written because I can't, you know, uh, interpret Chinese, I can't read Greek, you know. So there are a lot of things that are mysteries. Maybe that's part of it. 
you know, he, he, uh, if he understood everything fully and expressed it in this way, which is not uh, clear, it's not presented as information about something, it's, it's an expression of, of him, and yet that can affect me and us in a very uh, bene beneficial way in terms of inspiration. That is truly a magical transmission, not of information, but of, um, I would say, a spirit. Spirit of poetry. Incantation. Yes, incantation. And also, I think maybe, if you really want to speculate, given his uh, um, say obsession with the troubadours, for instance, that's also him, much, much later, uh, carrying on in a tradition that inspired him very, very much. There was no direct lineage. He just sort of hooked himself up to this um, energy source of the troubadours, and he was a troubadour in his own sense. And, you know, we, we can buy the cantos in basically any bookstore. So it's there for the taking. And that is truly a magical feat. And and in part, we have James Laughlin to, to, to thank for that. Well, when Katrina was talking about that in her talk, and, like, kind of talking about all of his friends, that reminded me of, like, the idea of having blood ancestors and adopted ancestors. So these are, like, the people that influence you and inspire you become like ancestors even if they're living now or people that you knew um so it just reminded me of that like he had built his kind of yeah ancestral feeling around mm -hmm. him and i think that's the best thing that people can do yeah <laughs> really well there's also to take um the you're talking about the the kind of frequency right uh, of the poems he thinks of the poet as an antenna yeah uh, the poems themselves become this frequency, this transmission that is received, uh, which is then, you know, passes through us like radio transmissions mm -hmm. do. Um, but also the poet Jack Spicer takes on this notion of the poet as radio, uh, receiving transmissions from the outside, uh, spewing them forth on the page, uh, though he said he was receiving them from Martians, mm -hmm. um, you know, which, are metaphorical for the other. Yeah. Uh, but then this is a tradition that starts starts with Pound um, and then is passed on to the next generation. Spicer died in 65, um, but was much younger, mm. 26, I think. Um, and is still carried on in young poets today. Mm. And so, you know, these traditions of magical reception, if you will, or, or thinking of the poetics as a vibration, as a frequency, are still being used today in contemporary poetry. So is it modernist, mm. or is what is contemporary always modern? Mm. Yes. And now the word seems exhausted. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's 5.30. Should we just take another break then? And, and uh, we said that anybody wants to uh, read some poetry, it's more than welcome to do so. That's how we'll conclude. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a presentation from Ethan Clark and Carl Abrahamson from the conference Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis. 
These presentations were given on June 1st, 2019 at Brunenberg Castle in Murano, Italy. For more, please visit the conference website, psychartcult.org. That's P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T dot org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. vessel for such spirits, and strong dead of both of lineage and of adoption. Symposium, recitation of Shakespearean about society, being kinder to you, me. Then, the two other picks are of the old burrows, declared this the best. Congolese magic is unparalleled. History we have breaks from each other. Believe in any space. So when we re-enter the scene, returning or anywhere really, it's fine. The spirits just don't like pee and fuck in the pool.
to honor my lineage with another of identity, just more so to honor my lineage. The apocryphal back and change hour, whose object, a biological, first rays of movement, physical before we reproduction 